Welcome to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast with Darren Mitchell. If you're a sales letter looking to take your leadership to a whole new level, then this is the podcast for you. We'll be exploring tips, techniques, and strategies to help you take your leadership to the exceptional level and allow you to enjoy more money, more meaning, and better sales results. Welcome back to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast. Darren Mitchell here on uh, on a day approaching Christmas. Can't believe it's the uh, well here in Melbourne. It's the twenty third of December as we uh, as we record this. I'm actually having the privilege of speaking to a person on the other side of the world from Calgary in Canada, which happens to be, I believe, Thursday the twenty second of December. Mr. Mark Rafan, how are you? Or is it Raffin? Raffin, Raffin, Raffin. whatever makes you feel. I don't really care. Thank you so much for having me, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, awesome. And I was just saying, you, you caught me at the tail end of a workout, and I re- I really appreciate your flexibility on having me show up this way to be able to have this conversation. Thank you very much for that, mate. It's brilliant, and it's good that we're going to have audio because uh, I'm sitting here in a business shirt. Um, it's summer. It's summer down here in Melbourne, but I'm uh, I'm sort of um, I was going to say freestyling down below, but I just got a pair of shorts on. <laughs> and you're it was, What's what's the temperature right now in Melbourne? Uh, today it's going to be twenty seven degrees Celsius. Yeah, so this morning it was minus thirty one where I live. Minus thirty one Fahrenheit or minus thirty one Celsius? Celsius, Celsius. Jesus. Yeah, so which you- is about it's about the same temperature in Fahrenheit. That's where it starts. It starts to equalize at minus forty. My God. And so you got you obviously you're going through snow, but in the background I can see that it's like sunshine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's end of day here. It's 4.12 p.m., so still sunshine. We'll start getting um, dark at about 5.30. Awesome. Awesome. Mate, hey, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I know you are the head trainer of an organization called Negotiation Ninja. And uh, yes, one, thing I'm, one thing I'm very passionate about when it comes to sales leadership is, is improving the way we negotiate, not just with external stakeholders, but also oh, for many some of the challenges is more internal stakeholder management and negotiation. So I think that happens in a lot of organizations. Internal often tends to be more difficult than external. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to delve into that today, but before we do that, love to get a bit of a background on you for the listeners in terms of what's the Mark Raffin story. I know you, um, you, you, you're not a, do I say this? You're not a born and bred Canadian. You sort of emigrated that's, to Canada. Yeah, that's you? right. Yeah. I came yeah. to Canada when I was 17, born and raised in South Africa and, Spent most of my business career in Canada and traveling abroad um, and uh, started out in sales right out of university, um, stole ads uh, online, did ad- online advertising sales for quite some time and then moved into procurement, actually played the other side of the table for a very long time, built most of my career in and around procurement um, and had just a, a glorious time of it. And five years ago, started Negotiations Ninja and now we do that, and it's uh, it's an amazing organization, and uh, I love it. Well, I got to say, if you've if you've had the because many people in in B two B sales particularly don't get the opportunity to work on the other side of the fence, yes. and I'm I'm certain that having been in procurement for a while, you'd have a unique perspective when it comes to uh, negotiating with people like that, but also helping sales teams negotiate with those sort of organizations. So. Yeah, Love a big to, um, part of what we do now is teaching salespeople how to do that. So yeah. it's a uh, it's a fun time. Well, I'd love to delve into that, but something else caught my eye in your profile, my friend, and that is um, something to do with cage diving. 
and a great <laughs> white shark. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, I grew up in South Africa. So part of um, that experience means, and as you know, this is someone that lives in Australia, there are sharks um, in the ocean. And whenever I speak to anyone in North America, they're like, good Lord, why did you do that? It's just one of those things that I think you have to do at some point in some point. And it's a legitimate question. I mean, really, if you think about it, like, why would you get into the water with that? But we were, my wife and I were backpacking through South Africa. Um, gosh, it's going to be eight years or so ago. And we wanted to do all the touristy things that I never had an opportunity to do when I lived there. Yeah. You know, as you live in a country, you're like, you know, you never really take advantage of it for, you know, all of the amazing tourist attractions that it has. And so Jen and I decided to do the great white shark diving. And it was just an incredible experience. Funny story though, we were going out, I, I get terribly seasick. So we were going out um, on this boat to be able to do the shark diving and they feed you breakfast and stuff as you know, before you go out, but I got so seasick that I felt like I was feeding the fish all the way out to the side. <laughs> and I think I chummed the mortar, water more than trial. the, uh, yeah, I, just, I think I attracted most of the sharks. Anyway, we get into, uh, we get ready, right? You get in the wetsuit and all the rest of it. And they've got this cage that they hang on the side of the boat. And they've got the regulators that come off the side of the boat so that it's all controlled air. So it's all very safe. Everything's extra welded. But we've never done anything like this before. So we were watching the first group go in. The first group goes in and um, they have this bait ball, this chum ball that they throw into the water to almost like a, on the edge, end of a big rope that they pull in to attract the sharks. And the goal with it is to lift up the bait ball out of the water so that the shark turns in front of the cage so that you can see the full size of the shark. Yeah. Anyway, this guy pulls the shark, uh, the, the bait ball out of the water just a little bit too late and the shark slams into the cage so that these people that are right in front of us basically experience a shark attack right in front of them. Never gets through the cage, of course, it's super safe. But yeah. at that moment, every single person in that cage comes out of the water screaming as though <laughs> someone was about to murder them. And at that moment, I realized how out of our depth we actually were in the situation. I was like, listen, if the shark wants to eat us today, we're going to die. And so I said my prayers and I decided that if I'm going to die today, at least I'm going to die in style and there'll be a great story to tell about me. We got into the cage. We had a great experience. Nothing happened. It was super anticlimactic, but it was very, very beautiful. And then we, uh, then we came back and it was, yeah, just a great story. Wow. And when you listen to that and when you talk about, and, and yes, living in Australia, there's a lot of sharks, particularly in the southern and eastern parts um, and also yes. to the west as well. Um, it's a lot of people have all these fixation about, oh, don't go into the water, particularly if you watch movies like Jaws, don't ever go into the yeah. water after watching that. But you also speak to marine biologists and others that study sharks and particularly great whites. They're fascinating animals, if you call them animals Super or animals. It just and their 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 intelligence level is incredible. Um, yeah. I've never done it, but I can imagine it'd be a massive adrenaline rush getting so close to um to that in their in their territory. Yeah, and the funny thing about great whites, from what I understand, and I'm no biologist either. Actually, my wife is a marine biologist, but um, oh. she told me that great white sharks never stop moving; they are always swimming. Yeah. And I think that's like in a, can you imagine a life where you never stop moving? You're always moving. You're always looking for that next meal and that yeah. next kill. So yeah, it's incredible. And it makes you wonder then, do they, do they still, do they slow down when they sleep? Or do they sleep? Do they sleep while they're awake? Know. How does I don't know. 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's incredible. These these animals are incredible. It's awesome. And it's also probably a good segue to um, talk about some sharks in the business world as well, because I know there's a lot of them out there when it comes to negotiating. Yeah, <laughs> yeah hopefully I've trained a few of them. Um, no, I want, look, I want people to be effective. Um, I think, you know, there certainly are sharks out there. And I think this is the biggest problem that I have with um, a lot of the negotiation training that is out there is everyone, no, I shouldn't say everyone, but a lot of people in the negotiation training work world talk about negotiation in its idyllic state yeah meaning you know we all want it to be super collaborative and we want to be transparent and we want to be open with each other and we want to trust each other and we want everything to be quote unquote fair Mm. but it's not always that way you are going to come across folks who are going to take advantage of you in certain situations and you need to know how to deal with those kinds of situations and it's uh, it's it's very sad um that you've got certain situations where people just aren't prepared for yeah. that because they, they think that everyone's going to be fair and collaborative and they're just not. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think if there's one message that I want to leave with folks on your show today is, you know, yes, you know, I'd love for you to be collaborative and, and open and stuff like that, but be prepared for others not to mm. um, and, and, and learn how to deal with those kinds of situations. This whole concept that, you know, we want to look for the fair approach I believe is truly nonsense because I really don't think that there is such a thing as fair because your perception of what's fair and my perception of what's fair are two totally different things. Mm. Um, and I think that it's um, unusual that we, we talk about negotiation in the perfect world because it's not perfect. No, it's not. And it's, it's interesting you say that. I do a little bit of negotiating training as well. And I, I fully resonate with the idyllic state because in a perfect world, we all sit down, we want to create a win-win outcome, we want to be collaborative and want to, you know, almost sit down and sing Kumbaya together. But in the reality, there's different biases, different uh, right. key stakeholders that need to be appeased. There are certain things that need to get done and, and also things like um, time time restrictions or financial restrictions that preclude us from from really getting to the to the win-win situation now that might be an ideal position and that might be utopia but we have to be mindful of of people are different they're going to have those different yep. biases, and they're going to have different personality types as well right and so they just want to win so um often what i talk to them about is that you'll come up against a lot of competitors and competitors just want to win right so right. if you're sitting there trying to be a a beautiful um collaborator you're going to get eaten alive because they're That's just right. going to come over the top of you. So I'm interested in your perspective, Mark, in terms of, you know, you said before you spent some time in procurement on the other side of the fence. Yep. Um, what was it that led you to move into what you do now in terms of working with sales teams and businesses in, in relation to negotiation and by the way, conflict yep. resolution and stuff like that? Yeah. Great question. I think the, the biggest thing that drew me to it was, Um, the fact that most salespeople are actually not good negotiators. They're great at selling, they're great at influencing, but they may not necessarily be great at negotiation. So when they come across a procurement person who basically lives, eats, sleeps, and breathes negotiation, and they come and the sort of the stereotypical asshole procurement person, um, <laughs> you know, like it's it, they, they don't know what to do. And in fact, it's funny, I, I was having this, I just hired a new sales guy for my business. And uh, I was having this conversation with him. I said, let's do some role playing. And I played the stereotypical procurement person that, you know, most salespeople hate to see. And he made a proposal to me and I said, look, 
you seem like a nice guy and stuff, but your proposal is absolute dog shit. So why don't you take it back, rethink your position and come back to me with something that makes sense for our organization. And he said, do procurement people actually talk like that? I was like, absolutely. They do. <laughs> yes, I do. And, and, and so now you need to like, you thought you were negotiating with someone collaborative, but now you're dealing with someone that really just wants to destroy you. Um, and so your job is to be able to find ways to address that. Now I'm making a, a grand generalization. Obviously not all procurement people are like that. And certainly not all salespeople are like that as well. Yeah. But you need to know how to deal with those personality types. And so I think one of the things that really possessed me to um, work with a lot of salespeople and procurement people um, in negotiation was to teach them how to handle those conversations and that mostly how to plan, prepare, and strategize for different conversations that they're having because most people just don't know how to do that. Yeah, they just they almost put a proposal on the table and go in and think we're just going to talk about the proposal. And right. if they're not prepared, like they haven't thought about what their walkaway position is, or they haven't thought about what yeah. their best case scenario is. So right. And, and, and I've done it as a salesperson. I've gone and think oh, I'm going to get a great deal. I walk out literally with my tail between my leg, haven't got a deal that's not profitable. Now I've got to go and explain it back to my sales manager as to what I've just right. done. Exactly. And I think most people go into those kinds of situations assuming they can just wing it, right? They go into those situations thinking, yeah, it's going to be fine. I'm going to be all right. I know what I'm talking about when it comes to the product or the service or whatever it is that I'm selling. But the issue is that you haven't thought about what it is you're actually trying to achieve. Yes, you want, quote unquote, the deal. But what does that actually mean? The deal at any cost? Yeah. What about the terms that you're going to be negotiating for? What about the limitation of liability? What about the IP protection? What about the price that you're selling it at? What about the risk exposure? All of those things come into light. And then you think when you get a deal, you're super happy about it as a salesperson. You go and present it to your boss and you say, hey, look at this amazing deal that I got. And your boss says, hey, man, this risk exposure is insane. Like, why are we agreeing to this? This is crazy. We shouldn't agree to this at this price. And then you have to go back and renegotiate that deal. And so it's, you know, teaching people that it's, you've got to not only maximize value, but retain value is probably the most important thing that we do. Yeah, absolutely. And that means the importance of preparation cannot ever be underestimated. Because yes. if you go in there and understand if, if, if a procurement person is going to throw out a terms of reference um, clause that is, is something that, you know, we cannot possibly do, we've got to know how to respond to that, right? Yeah. And and yeah. sometimes the salespeople have so much pressure on them to get the deal done that they, they wilt. Yeah. I think therein lies a structural problem that exists with a lot of sales teams is that they they are compensated to get the top line revenue and not necessarily compensated to get a better quality deal. And so who can blame them, right? Yeah. They so they push to get the revenue, they push to get the deal. You can't really blame them for conceding in all different areas because you're not compensating them appropriately for the quality of the deal. Um, and so I, I think once people realize that, certainly I think we need to fix some compensation structures, but we also need to think about how we coach our sales team. And I reckon part of that is, as you said, it's the measurement. Like a lot of salespeople are measured purely on top line revenue. You just grow your top line yes. revenue and they don't have visibility. And for some reason, organizations don't want to give visibility of profit margins, stuff like that, because the the stereotypical response is, oh, if I give my sales team 
access to profitability and decision-making criteria, they're going to go to the smallest possible margin in order to get the deal, which is yeah. counterintuitive because my experience is they do the complete opposite. They want to make sure yeah. it's as profitable as possible. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think, I think the, you know, the standard insights to that, as you mentioned, are like, you know, they're going to discount to the bottom line. I haven't found that. Yeah. I found the opposite to be true. They actually try to maintain as much profitability, as you said, as humanly possible. But it, I, think, I think the issue is the discipline in giving them proper guidelines and proper guardrails to be able to make those decisions. I yeah. think what a lot of businesses make the problem of, or make the mistake of doing is not giving them tight enough guidelines and guardrails to be able to make those effective decisions. Yeah. And so essentially all you're doing is you're training glorified realtors, right? Where they have to go back and forth between the business and the client over and forward. They're not actually able to make effective decisions for the organization. It slows the business cycle down. It slows the sales cycle down and they don't negotiate good deals. Not to mention the reduction in credibility of the salesperson themselves. Cause they think, well, right. you don't, Mark, you don't have ability to make a decision. So um, like procurement will say, why am I dealing with you then? Give me somebody who's right, got exactly. decision-making capability. Yeah, I'll just escalate it to someone who can make a decision. Meanwhile, that person who can make a decision has been out of the game for so long that they've actually forgotten how to negotiate and we steamroll those people. So um, yeah, it's, I think it's, it's, a, it's a broader structural problem. But in the meantime, while they fix those structural problems, I coach those sales teams how to negotiate more Awesome. So there's a couple of things I'd love to touch on. Um, one is how to deal with some of these difficult, difficult, uh, not so much the procurement people, but difficult personality types, just some tactics and sure. some thoughts around that. But um, before we do that, I'm uh, interested in getting your thoughts on some habits around how sure. to improve our uh, negotiating skills, because whether you're a salesperson listening to this or a sales leader, um, you're going to be having to do some form of negotiation uh, pretty soon, if not have been doing it already. And if we can fine tune and sharpen the ax a little bit, it's going to make it a lot easier to get some better outcomes. So what are some, what are some key habits, if you like, on how to improve our negotiation skills? I think the single biggest thing you can do is develop the habit of preparation mm -hmm. and planning and preparing. I think the foundation of that is really understanding what you need um, and what your success drivers are for that negotiation. Um, we've dealt sort of at a high level with that, you and I. So I think the next big habit that you can develop is the habit of practice. So mm -hmm. many teams that I work with don't have a good role-playing practice. So they go into negotiations having prepared. Maybe they've done the work to be able to prepare, which is rare, but let's just say they've done the work. But then they fumble over their words and they fumble over their questions and they don't probe and they don't have good discovery. And all of that kind of stuff falls apart because they haven't really prepared for that specific negotiation through role play. And as we know, practice is the mother of all skill. And so if you don't actually practice, you're never going to get better. It's like talking to a competitive athlete and saying, hey, you know what? Just take three months off and then go into the championship. It's not going to work. You're going to lose that game, right? So you, you need to be able to implement practice into your sales team, your procurement team, your M&A team, how, whatever you're doing with negotiation on an ongoing basis, there needs to be a practice mentality. That's the single biggest habit that I think people can develop. And it's probably the 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 habit that they would like to uh, avoid at all costs. I know that yeah, it's time consuming. It's pain in the ass. 
Nobody wants to do a role play. <laughs> no, no one wants to do it because it's time consuming and it's a pain in the ass and everyone would much rather be doing something else. Yeah. But the, the issue with that is, yeah, of course, practice is hard. Working out is hard. If you're not coming out of the gym and you're not sore the next day, you probably haven't worked out hard enough. Yeah. The same thing is true for role playing. It's hard, mm. but it, it works. It makes you better. And if you want to get better at what you do, you have to practice. And in the case that you put your new salesperson through and acted as the procurement person, that was a role play. And what did you notice in terms of, other than the question, hey, Mark, do procurement people actually speak like this? What was the outcome right. of that? How did, how did that help him? It was a great learning experience. And so he basically discovered that, my goodness, I need to face more difficult negotiations in order to feel like I'm better prepared on an ongoing basis. Because as you might imagine, 50% of my customer base are actually procurement teams. And if you think that they don't negotiate with me, you are mistaken. They obviously do. They want to negotiate and get a quote unquote win from the negotiation professional. So obviously they're going to try and get a win from us. So he has to now face those people all the time. Um, and it was a good learning experience for him. So now we're implementing role-playing into almost every single week, yeah. which is fantastic. Awesome. Awesome. So preparation practice, is there a third one? Yeah, I think maybe the third habit that you can get into is a good debrief methodology and a good debrief practice, um, which is really after every single negotiation that you go into, just stop for, it doesn't have to be long, 15 minutes for you to think about, okay, what did I do well? Mm. What did I not do well? What do I need to do better next time? Because that single thing alone is going to help you think about ways that you can improve on your negotiation skills for other negotiations that you go into. Um, and I, I think those three things really, really deliver the goods when it comes to negotiation and improvement on negotiation over and over again. Yeah, I think they're fantastic. Um, I mean, and the great thing about them is they're grounded in common sense, which as we know is not that common because as we've already said, there's yeah. a lot of sales teams that just go out there and ah, she'll be right. I know this. I know this person I'm negotiating with. We're right. mates. We have coffee. She'll be right. <laughs> yeah. And then you come out and you're like, I don't know if I did very well or you did, you think you did well. And then you discover three months later that someone got a significantly better deal than you. And you're like, Hey, what, what happened? I thought we were friends. And then you realize, Oh wait, we're, we're in business, right? Like, I can't expect this person to be friendly with me if we're having an actual negotiation. No, but I think if we do the preparation, if we practice and we start thinking about what are the different things that could happen, um, yeah. identifying where our walkaway position is and being true to that and having the courage to say, hey, we're prepared to walk away from this deal. And so part of that is not being completely attached to having to get the perfect outcome. But right. we're here to do good business, right? And if you're if you're going to try and drive a bargain that is not profitable for us, then quite frankly, you're not we're not the right fit for you guys, and be okay right, exactly. with that, right? Because I'd much rather yeah, have exactly. that conversation than go back and say I've got a, I've got this deal, great, top line revenue looks fantastic. We're actually going to be losing money, which means the organisation is going to be looking for over the term of an agreement every single opportunity to try and recoup some of that lost profitability. That's not good exactly. business. 100% so, correct preparation practice and debrief and i love the debrief because we don't we don't do that we don't we don't give ourselves feedback we don't seek feedback if we're in a multi-pronged negotiation with other key stakeholders we've got to do that absolutely yeah i, I think one of the things that i want to just emphasize there is not only just a good debrief strategy but even a good pre-brief strategy and, and ensuring that 
your team is well aware of what you're going in to negotiate. Your supervisor is well aware of what you're going in to negotiate because someone you're negotiating with is going to try and backdoor you on that deal. And if they don't get what they want, they're going to try and escalate it. And if the people that you're working with aren't aware of what it is you're trying to achieve, they're going to just do whatever it is they need to do to get that deal. Yeah. And if they don't know how to retain and maintain value, then they're going to make decisions that might actually end up hamstringing you in that conversation. Oh, it's so absolutely critical because that means we want to make sure that every single person's on the same page, delivering the same yes. message, but also uh, knowing what their own individual roles and responsibilities are in the cycle of not just the sales process, but the negotiation process as well. Because That's right. You will see that, that, you know, if, if Mark can't give me the deal that I'm looking for, I'm going to go to Mark's boss because I reckon I've got a better relationship with his boss and therefore get a better deal. And in the process, if that happens and your boss is blindsided and we get a good deal, I've just intermediate, disintermediated you and it's it's not good for long-term business relationships, is it? Entirely true. Yeah. So... um. I'm, I'm thinking there'll be people listening to this right now who have had some challenges with negotiations and they might have done some negotiating training and they've sat there and thinking, oh, you know what, we've got to look for win-wins. We've done all the we've done all the processy stuff. We've done our uh, walk-away position. We've tried to identify the zone of possible agreement, all that sort of stuff. But um, I'm not quite sure how to deal with different personality types because whilst I'm going in with a... If, with an intention of getting a deal, because I know that the solution we have will solve a problem. Um, I'm not necessarily going to be dealing with somebody who is looking for a win-win outcome from the other side perspective, because they've got their own KPIs and biases. What are some things, and, and particularly um, in the training that you're doing, what are some of the key, I guess, behavior types or characters that you talk about that people need to be mindful of, particularly when it comes to the planning phase of negotiations. And are there any tips and tricks in terms of being able to deal with some of these types of types of people? Yeah, I, I mean, the message that I would give to you when whenever you're dealing with someone that has um, uh, maybe a different characteristic or a different personality than you would hope that they have when it comes to a collaborative uh, type person, if they're more combative or more difficult, is to be a chameleon. Be a chameleon because I don't think that you sticking to your regular personality type is going to help you. Um, so you need to learn to adapt to the situation that you're going into. Now, when I say that, a lot of people go, well, Mark, doesn't that, isn't that disingenuous? Like, am I, am I being truthful to myself? Listen, I'm not really interested in who you are. I'm interested in you getting good value. So <laughs> if that means that you got to change, you got to change, man. That's, that's how this works. So you've got to be able to be able to flex and adapt in those kinds of situations. Now, what does that mean? That means that you have to learn to become more combative if it calls for it. You have to become to, uh, more submissive if it calls for it. You have to be able to control the conversation if it calls for it. It really depends on the situation that you're going into and the person that you're working with. Most typically, if you're working with someone that's more combative, that needs to have control of that conversation, sometimes the counterintuitive approach is even better. Showing that you might be even more submissive while asking them better questions can sometimes elicit significantly more information than you would have otherwise. And I know there's a few dudes that probably heard that and said, I'm not going to be submissive. Hey, man, chill out. It's just a word. <laughs> all I'm saying, 
All I'm saying is that you might have to be and show that you are more open and make that person feel like they trust you more so that you can ask them better questions. It really depends on who you're working with and how you're working with them. Um, there's some great tools out there that you can start to utilize in terms of thinking about how people approach things. Obviously, um, the you know, Myers-Briggs, DISC, um, all that kind of stuff can be super, super helpful. There is an yes. amazing tool on LinkedIn. I think that, uh, no, it's not LinkedIn. There's an amazing tool, it's a Google Chrome add-in that I think is called Crystal Nose, uh, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-K-N-O-W-S. Um, and it is a basically a, a profile reader for LinkedIn as well as search history. So it pings all of your different search history as well as uh, your LinkedIn profile. Don't quote me on that. I'm not 100% sure on the technical details, but yeah. it gives you an idea of who the person is, what their biases are, how they react to things, what good opening lines may be. And it's a really good sort of horseshoe approach to be able to understand what you're going to do and how you're going to approach it. Love it. Love it. Because I, I think um, the word you use, chameleon, is uh, a word that not many people, well, I think they I, I think they understand it, but they don't necessarily embrace it because particularly yeah. when they're under pressure, they'll default to their own preferred personality style because that, that's where they're most comfortable. Yeah, and I get that, right? I mean, it, it makes sense that you're going to default to what you're most comfortable with, but what you're most comfortable with may not generate value in that situation. Yeah. So you're going to have to learn to be adaptable to the situation that you're in, and you're going to have to learn to change. Which comes back to one of the three key habits that is practice, which means you've got to be able to put yourself into, and I always we always talk about this safe zone and creating psychological safety, but if you've got a, a team that can actually instill a strategy of practice and you can have yep. different people who you trust, you, you've already got the relationship, playing different types of characters in the heat of the moment, even though it's a role play, to see how you can uh, ask questions, how you can think for yourself on the on the spot to develop right. up that level of habit so that when you're in the, because the worst thing you can do is actually practice in front of a real customer. Right? Yeah, <laughs> we don't want that to practice. happen. Practice no. inside the organization. Absolutely. And be a chameleon. Um, because, and if, if we don't do that, then we won't necessarily get the amount of deals that we should be able to get. Um, right. If we had that flexibility. So bring it exactly. on. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So from, from uh, your experience in dealing with um, lots of organizations and training them, what are some of the biggest challenges that they find that brings them to you in terms of negotiating Ninja? Yeah, they're not getting as much value. And usually that comes at the end of a market cycle or a fiscal cycle, and it's usually too late, right? So they, they come to me at the end of a quarter or at the end of a year, and they realize, hey, man, we, we think we left too much money on the table. We think we could have gotten more value. We think we could have de-risked things more. We think we could have gotten a better deal out of these significant deals that we did. Um, and it's almost always too late. Now, fortunately enough, most businesses are doing enough volume where you can catch up um, and you can make sure that those gains that you get after you do the negotiation training make up for the losses that you probably experienced before. Um, but it's usually after you realize, I don't think we're doing as well as we should. I don't think we're, we're creating as much value as we should. But that takes, that takes, unfortunately, sometimes a bad fiscal. 
right? It yeah. takes a, a bad quarter for people to go, I think we could be doing better. We could yeah. be doing more. Yeah. And it's like the, uh, it reminds me of the, um, the Chinese, is it a Chinese proverb that said the best, the best time to plant a Chinese bamboo tree was like 20 years ago. And right. the next best time is right now. So at least, at least right. the recognition that, hey, we're not getting the most value here. I reckon we can actually extract some more value if we put some process in place, some practice in place, some key principles right. in place, because we can set ourselves up for the next, you know, fiscal year or the next couple of years. And, yep. and we may not be able to get it from this customer, but we might be able to get it back from other customers. So learn, yep. learn from that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fortunately enough. It, you you will be able to recover if you've got enough volume to be able to recover. The great thing about any kind of training, whether it's your sales training or or my negotiation training or anyone's training, really is the more that you take of it, the better you're going to get. Yeah. Right. And I think a dedication to continuous improvement is really important for a lot of mm-hmm. different teams. And and something that I would say to to anyone really looking to seek negotiation training is don't just do one. Um, I know there's a lot of negotiation trainers that would say something to the effect of, you know, my way is the way, you know, thou shalt only enter heaven if only through me. Um, That's not true. That's a lie. Don't do that. Um, That's disingenuous and it's uh, nonsense. Do my training, of course, but also do a bunch of other negotiation training as well. What you're going to discover is that there's a broad range of experience. There's a broad range of approaches. There's different ways to think about things. There should never just be one way that you approach something. This is what I mean in terms of being adaptable. Um, Yes, we have an approach. Yes, we have a system. Yes, we have a strategy. Is it the only strategy? No. Should you learn other strategies? Yes, absolutely. And that's, that's a really um, good way to look at things because, and, and you just take the analogy of sales, for example, how many salespeople and sales teams and sales organizations believe that they have the best product in the world, the number one this, the biggest of that, and right. nobody else should come to anybody else other than me for this particular product and service. And it's just rubbish, right? So, right. It's um, disingenuous. It is. It is. So thinking about, okay, we've got a solution we need to put in place. There's going to be some form of negotiation. We may not get it right all the time, but let's actually learn some things that maybe we don't know, or maybe we do know, because maybe I'm going to put some words in your mouth here, which is a bit of a dangerous thing because you're on the other side of the world. But I'm sure a lot of the stuff, uh, and being respectful here, that you teach is not rocket science, right? It's no, founded in common no, it's sense. super simple. It's, it's- <laughs> It's difficult to implement because it requires effort and hard work, but it's yes. not complicated stuff. Yeah. It's not, it, look, I don't, I don't need you to have anything greater than a grade eight education to get it. Yeah. Yeah. And so what do we do as human beings? We try to overcomplicate it. We might say, hey, it can't be as easy as this, Mark. You tell me that I just have to follow these steps and I have to do these three key habits and I have to be a chameleon. And when I do that, I can significantly increase the odds of me getting good outcomes. Yes, that's what we're yeah. saying. That's right. <laughs> and that's right. Yeah. And then people are like, well, it must, it must be more complicated. Where is your algorithm that shows this? And you're like, algorithm, dude, this is a conversation, right? Like, <laughs> learn to have better conversations. We're not talking about extreme independent math. But I'm not Elon Musk. I'm not trying to send a rocket to the moon. I'm just trying to teach you how to talk better. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, Fantastic. It's been, been a fantastic conversation. As we as we kind of wrap up, I'm interested in the where do you get the name from? Negotiations Ninja. Um, I like alliteration. I'm not. No, gosh, I wish that would be amazing. <laughs> um, 
No, I, I like alliteration. So things that rhyme and also alliteration. So I wanted to, to be part of negotiation. I wanted negotiation in the name. And so it just sort of felt natural. And I also appreciate, um, you know, martial arts dedication to practice and martial arts dedication to ensuring that you're getting better. And so that was part of it that I built out the name. And um, yeah, it's, it's just been, it's been fun. The, the only downside to that is that people now think that I've named myself Negotiations Ninja, which is incredibly arrogant. That wasn't the purpose. <laughs> the, the, pur the purpose was to name the company as Negotiations Ninja. And so now when I get announced on a stage, people say, the Negotiations Ninja, Mark Raffin. I'm like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's, let's not get ahead of ourselves. That's the name of the company. That's not my name. But, uh, but it is. Yeah, it's a fun name and it, it sticks, right? People remember it. Well, it is and and you know what if you're and you because you're associated with it they'll actually say well you, they might think that you are the negotiations ninja so right if you're delivering that hey that as i say with nicknames and certainly they do this in australia you can't give yourself a nickname it's only for others right to yeah, yeah 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 exactly <laughs> exactly yeah that would actually explain a lot of names that i got as a kid thanks for bringing up that trauma darren yeah now i've got a Book another appointment with my psychiatrist. Appreciate that. <laughs> to work through that. I'm sure there's a process <laughs> for that as well. <laughs> hey, um, I also noticed you've got a, uh, a Negotiations Ninja podcast. So um, yes. for people who are listening to this, who want to know more about Mark Raffin, but also uh, Negotiations Ninja and the podcast, where's the best place for them to um, get access to you? Just search it online, Negotiations Ninja. Type it in the search bar. It'll pop up. Or wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's Spotify or whether it's iTunes or whatever you do, just type in Negotiations Ninja. It'll come. We interview the best negotiators in the world, from hostage negotiators to business negotiators to crisis negotiators to suicide hotline negotiators, pretty much everyone who has difficult conversations. Um, and the benefit of that is, is that we get the best insights from the best people in their field all over the world. Awesome. I'm actually going to put that on my list of uh, listening because I bought I bought a book. I can't remember where it is. Um, FBI hostage negotiator. Something I can't remember the title of the book. But never um, split the difference. That's it. Never split the difference. Chris yeah. Voss, he's been on yeah. our show three times. Wow. So I'm going to yeah, uh, great guy. Really, really that. nice. Smart dude. Smart yeah. Dude. That is yeah. awesome, uh, mate. This is uh, and thank you for uh, for jumping on the podcast so close. Hey, to thank you for having also, me, and I really appreciate it. Now it's been a been an awesome conversation. If there was uh, if there was one one key piece of advice, if we were list, leaving leaving listeners right now, um, leading into Christmas, and for many, they're going to be having a break over Christmas and coming back in the new year. If there's one thing you give them as a thought over the Christmas to reflect on when it comes to negotiations, what would that be? As a Christmas present to yourself, enroll yourself in some negotiation training in January. I don't Bring care it. who it's with. It doesn't matter who it's with for me. Just go do it. It's going to make you better. Fantastic. And as we know, exceptional sales leaders always invest in their own development and that of their team. So that should be a fantastic um, piece of advice for them to take on. So Mark Rafan, all the way from Calgary in Canada at minus 31 degrees Celsius. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank and, you uh, so much for having me, Darren. I really appreciate again, it, man. All good. Have a good Christmas.
Thank you for listening to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast. I trust the information in this episode has been helpful in your journey towards becoming exceptional. And remember, please take the time to rate the show, subscribe to the show so other people can find it. But also, if I can help you, jump on my calendar, go to leadwithdarren.com and let's have a conversation about how I can help you along your journey to being exceptional.